Today's scripture reading is from 2 Kings, chapter 17, verse 5 to 15, and chapter 25, verse 1 to 12. This can be found on page 274 and 281 of your pew Bibles. Second Kings, chapter 17, verse 5. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Halah and goes on on the Habor River and in the towns of the Medes. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, You shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commandments and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things that the Lord had forbidden them to do. Chapter 25, verse 1 to 12. Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, through the Babylon, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled toward the Arava, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where a sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. On the seventh day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of, the, of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. 
Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had gone over to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. May God bless the reading of his word. So about a year ago, I I went to jail. Uh, I went as a visitor, not as a ward of the state. If you thought otherwise, well, shame on you, but we're we're in no shame zone. So anyway. But I went to visit a, a fellow. And in jail, you got a fair bit more time, leisure time, than you have normally outside of jail. So, because this guy was in there for something kind of horrific, then he started to use his spare time to read. But they don't give you much reading material in jail. So he, he requested a Bible and started reading the Bible. And like I did the first time I tried to read the Bible. You know, just any book, you start from the beginning, right? This is not really a very good reading strategy with Scripture. So when I was visiting him, I asked him, How's that going? Because this is his first exposure to the Bible, really. How's it going, reading it from the beginning? And his, his one-sentence synopsis of his experience was this. God gets angry a lot. Now, I submit to you this morning that that is in Scripture, and it's certainly in those two readings we had today. But that God gets angry a lot is true. But it's a secondary theme. And it's not the primary theme. And it actually exists to highlight the primary theme. But still, you know, as Americans, we get anxious about God being angry. Uh, I think our culture prepares us for the notion that God should be kind and loving and do all the nice things for us. You know, I I think you can capture, or, or the song Home on the Range captures a piece of American culture in one phrase, right? Where seldom is heard a discouraging word. And we screen everything through that. I remember when we had cancer in our family, you know, uh, this is not a criticism of medical doctors, but you could maybe uh, give you a little advice, non-medical advice, dealing with people advice. You know, doctors want to bring you good news. They want to tell you you got cancer, but they want to bring you good news. So what's the most common thing I've heard is, well, if you got to have some kind of cancer, this is the best kind to have. Okay. No, I understand. You're in a difficult position. You've got a grief counsel in the midst of giving a medical opinion. But there is no best kind of cancer to have. Okay, take my word for it. We've been through it. But we have to make every, put a positive spin on everything. And so we're uncomfortable as Americans, even as American Christians, with the notion that God might get angry. And so you have some pastors who will deny it. You know, the book Love Wins. Somehow it's all going to work out in the end. Everybody will be happy, go lucky, God will be happy, we'll be happy, everything will work out. God, love wins. Or, or some of us, have, you know, we're very fond of C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia books. But Lewis had trouble, he was a proper English gentleman, so he would inevitably have trouble, for different reasons than Americans, with the notion of judgment, or anger, or hell. So he redefined it. Hell is not a place God sends you because he's angry. Hell is a place you choose for yourself because you prefer it. 
which is a great take on hell, if that were what the Bible taught. But you can understand the anxiety we feel about this. So this morning I want to demonstrate to you from Scripture, from even these passages. I mean, if you want to take two passages which are really basic and graphic about the anger of God and judgment, you can't get two stronger passages than these, or hardly. You can't get two stronger incidents in Israel's history than these two that we read about this morning. And yet I want to show you that even then, the anger of God, the judgment of God, is a secondary characteristic, not his primary characteristic. And there's no reason why any of us has to subject ourselves to the secondary characteristic when the primary characteristic is available to us. So let's take a look at it together. But just before we jump into that, I want to do something else or something related. You know, we're jumping into the middle of a story. Actually, we're two-thirds of the way through the story now. For those of you here for the first time, you've picked the best week to come. If you're just back from college, welcome home. It's a good week to come. Because I'm going to give you nine weeks, no, nine months of sermons in one sermon. And in fact, in about eight minutes. And it doesn't need to be like drinking from a fire hose. Because there's only a few basic ideas. All of Scripture, if you've been here regularly, know there's one big story through all of Scripture. And the story, you know, there's got a prequel in Genesis 1 to 11, but the story begins in Genesis 12, and it stretches all the way. Now, we're, now today's sermon, we are two-thirds way through the story. After this week, we're going to take a four-week break. I don't know, for your benefit or my benefit, we're going to take a four-week break, and we're going to have a couple of guest speakers and some topical sermons, and then we're going to go back and finish the last third of the story. But right now, we're at the point where we'll be two-thirds way through the story. So let's review where we've come from in order to anticipate where we are right now. Now, you all should know this, uh, if you're regular here. You know this, right? God made three promises to Abraham. You know, the, the creation made things beautiful. The fall corrupted everything. God said, I'm going to redeem it all. And to redeem it, he made three promises to Abraham. If you're a regular, what are those three promises? The first promise would be? Descendants. God promised them descendants. Then God promised them? Land. There you go. Whoa. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then God promised them? Trick question. Bless nations. All right. And so the whole, you know, the first half of the Bible is all about this. So Genesis. They start out Genesis. Abraham got a promise. And Abraham's really old. And his wife is barren. And she's really old. And there's no way he's going to have a lot of descendants. And yet he has a lot of descendants. By the time you get to the first chapter of Exodus, there's so many of them, the, the superpower Egypt is intimidated by all these Israelites in their territory and afraid that they're going to launch a rebellion. And then he promised them land. And the books of Exodus, you know, Exodus, step one, he takes them out of Egypt in slavery. And then Numbers, he's trying to bring them into the new land. And they say no. So he says, okay, you don't want it, you don't get it. Forty years, you wander around until all the old, older generation dies and then the younger generation gets it. And then in Joshua, he finally brings them into the land. And then that basically is the last major event in the land cycle. He brings them into the land and then they're living in the land under the rule of the kings. And that's what we've been looking at. And the third promise was just, 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 you can just about touch it. You know, that they would be a blessing to the nations because Israel became strong and powerful and Solomon was wealthy and made all these huge buildings and his reputation spread. A thousand miles it spread. And the queen of Sheba came on a one-month journey because she heard about this man's godliness, his wisdom, 
his wealth, and he was poised right there to bless the nations. But then something happened, which leads kind of to today. Apart from the three promises, there were two conditions laid down. Those two conditions were worship. First condition was they have to worship God and worship him alone. And the second condition was obedience. They had to live the way he called them to live. They had to worship him and they had to treat each other rightly. And basically the first two-thirds of the Old Testament, these five ideas. You got this, you got the, ma- the macro structure, you got the overall picture of it all. So, good week to come. Oh well. If, you had, if I had told you this ahead of time, you could have skipped nine months, so I didn't tell you ahead of time. But here we are. Now, what happens today in today's passage, if you follow the reading, and, and why there's two texts for today? You see, by this point, Israel had split into two nations, two different kingdoms, the north and the south, just like in American Civil War. They didn't fight about it. They didn't go to war. They, they had skirmishes back and forth, but there were two countries by now. And then what we have in today's passage is... The promises are lost. The promises of God are forfeited. In the, in the outline, I said broken promises, but God doesn't break promises. What happens here is that the promises are lost. The, the promises are voided or forfeited. So you see what happens in the first passage we looked at. In, uh, second, in, the, first pas- in the second passage that uh, the scripture reader read from, Second Kings chapter 25. Describing Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes. And the city was kept under siege. He put a siege around the city to starve them out. For two years, he besieged the city of Jerusalem. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Other parts of scripture are more graphic about this. The food the situation, was, they, they were so hungry, the famine was so widespread, there was no food to eat, and so they resorted to cannibalism, sometimes mothers of their own dead babies. And the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. And the army fled, and the Babylonian army pursued them. They pursued the king, and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his soldiers were separated from him and scattered. And he was captured. And he was taken back to the king of Babylon, where sentence was pronounced on him. And in front of his eyes, his children were killed. And then they put out his eyes. And they bound him with shackles and took him off as a prisoner of war. Now, here's the thing. Scripture says... This didn't happen because God was too weak to prevent it. This didn't happen because God didn't care. This happened as part of God's judgment on Israel. Now, Scripture really carefully qualifies this. God did not intend such barbarity. God did not cause, nor did he intend such barbarity. But he brought in Babylon to punish his people. And Babylon exceeded God's mandate, for which God then destroyed Babylon. 
The point is, God limits himself to some, to some extent. And having decided to bring in Babylon to judge his people, God let matters take their own course beyond what his intention was. But the reality is still there. Israel went into exile because of divine judgment. And consider what exile did. Their children and their people were killed. The descendants, the promise of descendants was voided. They went into exile off the land. The promise of land was voided. Instead of blessing the nations, they're now cursed by the nations. So my friend in jail was right. There's anger here. There's wrath. There's judgment. It is there. Now, before we go on to showing you why it's only a secondary theme, not the primary, there's one other point we need to look at in this passage. Because 2 Kings, not, not 25, but 2 Kings 17 explains why all this happened. And 2 Kings 17, it says explicitly in the text. Now, 2 Kings 25 is about the destruction of the south, Judah. Uh, 2 Kings 17 is about the destruction of the north, Israel. Now, 2 Kings 17 says, why did this take place? Why did God allow these things to happen? And 2 Kings 17, verse 7 says this. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then it defines what their sins was. First of all, they worshipped other gods. This God had chosen them from all the people. He chosen them. Abraham, no reason. Abraham wasn't virtuous. He chose Abraham. And then he promised Abraham's family line and all of his descendants. No reason. He chose them. And then he delivered them from oppression and slavery in the land of Egypt. And he brought them in and he multiplied them and he gave them their own land. And he showered them with blessing. And he set down two conditions. And the first was that they should worship him alone. All this took place because the Israelites sinned against the Lord their God. He brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. But they worshipped other gods. Verse 17, verse 10. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense. On every mountain, as is common in many parts of the world, on every big hill, every mountain, in front of every major tree, any spectacular landmark, they put up altars. God had said, worship me in Jerusalem, worship me alone. Instead, they put altars here, altars there, altars And they started worshiping all sorts of different gods there, just to be sure, just to be safe, just in case their God wouldn't look after them. They started worshiping all these other gods. At every high place, they burned incense. As the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done, they did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. You see, there is anger here. They worshiped idols. So the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah, through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees. And here is the first line of evidence that the anger of God is his second. Well, there's two lines of evidence that the anger of God is a secondary characteristic, not a primary. What came first? See, it wasn't the anger of God. What came first? God made a promise, entirely gratuitous, to Abraham. 
And then as he fulfills the first promise of descendants, Abraham, you know, for survival, because of the famine, they all go into Egypt. And then they reproduce in Egypt, and then they're enslaved. What comes first? God rescued his people from slavery. And only then does he say, now if we're going to be in relationship, there's, there's two obligations you have to reciprocate here. One is to worship, and the other is to live properly, live righteously. So grace came first. And you could even say that judgment doesn't come second. You could say judgment is not a secondary characteristic of God or anger. This is a tertiary characteristic of God. Because take a look at what chapter 17, verse 13 says. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers. Now, there's a whole lot hidden, a whole lot packed into that one statement. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers. Through all his prophets and seers. Now, if you read 1 Samuel, and you read 2 Samuel, and then you read 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and if you're not familiar with the Bible, those are four books in the Bible, and they go on for a long time, 400 years or so. And throughout those 400 years, the Bible says, and the people disobeyed God, and the people dishonored God, and the people refused to worship God alone and obey him. And God sent prophets. God sent prophets. God sent prophets. And all the prophets are warning. There were four good kings and dozens of bad kings. And throughout these hundreds of years, God's warning his people. God starts with grace and God starts with love. And then he goes into warning, urging people to flee wickedness and judgment. Only then, at the very end, does judgment come. So we see that Judgment sticks out in our minds as we read scripture because we have this expectation that this is a relationship without obligation maybe. Whatever reason, anger, God's anger sticks out in in our minds like it did in my friends. But, But that's not the primary theme of scripture. The primary theme is God's grace. And you can say the secondary theme is his mercy because when we step afoul of his grace... He still shows mercy and sends people to urge repentance. But eventually, when they wouldn't listen, over the course of four centuries, God finally lost patience and he sent judgment. Now, the central question is, what does any of this say to us this morning? Let's acknowledge straight up that judgment is not a theme we're comfortable with or happy about. We'd like to be able to live with impunity. Maybe we'd like to live with impunity. But you know we don't want anybody else to live with impunity, right? Maybe we would like to. Have you read the stories recently about the Rohingya Muslims fleeing Burma or Myanmar, whatever you want to call it? We'd like to live with impunity, but we don't think that the traffickers who are bringing those Rohingya Muslims out of Myanmar or Burma should live with impunity. Because of the flood of refugees, Malaysia has been exploring the jungles at its borders with Thailand. And they have found at least 30 camps 
where Rohingya Muslims have been captured or have been detained, no, uh, tortured, starved, uh, allowed to die. What happens is that the drug traffickers make a deal with the Muslims while they're in Myanmar. Oh, in, first of all, let's start with the blame begins. In Myanmar, because they're Muslim, they're being persecuted. So they want to flee. And wherever there's anyone wanting to flee, there's human traffickers willing to get the money from it. So they make a deal, say $1,000, to get somebody out of uh, Myanmar, settled into Malaysia or Indonesia, Muslim countries, where they would be safe. So they make a deal. One report said $1,000 this fellow was offered. Uh, was, was told for, to, get him, to get his family out, he was already out, to get his family out would cost him $1,000. So they take a rickety boat across the Sea of Bengal, I think it is, into the southern Thailand. They walk on the jungle paths through the south of Thailand into the camps on the Malaysian border. And then the human traffickers uh, imprison them in shackles, and in kind of bamboo structures, bamboo jails, imprison them and send word to the family overseas that it's going to cost you more money. And what was $1,000 now becomes $4,000. And then Malaysia and Indonesia are being swamped with all these refugees. So their navies start pushing the boats off the shore. And, you know, the UN described it as a human ping pong, as these boats go bounce back and forth between different countries that don't want to take it. And finally, Malaysia and Singapore, uh, Malaysia uh, and uh, Indonesia decided to try to take action and, and uh, stamp out the camps. But it, even if it's your own jungle, invading a jungle takes longer than what it takes to escape from a jungle. So by the time they got there, all the people were gone or dead, and the camps were abandoned. You read a story like that, and don't you think there's got to be judgment? Don't you think somehow that this is not a just universe if there's no judgment for people that force Muslims out of their homes because they're Muslim, out of the country, or that take advantage, such severe advantage of Muslims who are trying to flee? Don't you think there's got to be judgment? So in, in theory, it's, it's the absence of judgment which causes as much trouble as the presence of it. Or the example I gave from last week. Remember the, the, the case in Cleveland where the, uh, where the fellow fled from the police. Well, his car backfired and the police thought they were being shot at and he fled. And, and eventually 60 police cars were chasing him at some point, And the chase went on for 22 miles, uh, 100 miles an hour. And in the end, he and the passenger in his car had 20 bullets in them. In the end... One police alone had shot over 45 times, the last 15 standing on the hood of the car into the windshield. And the policeman was declared innocent, and he may have been, well, no, well, I mean, he may not have been the only, whatever, however you, but, but, but I'm not talking about the justice or, or not injustice of that court decision. What I want to do, I bring up the story again just to quote this. The victim's sister, Michelle Russell, said she believes that there will ultimately be justice. The police aren't going to dodge this just because they were acquitted. God will have the final say. Now, I'm not suggesting that the police were wrong. You know, we're not here to retry the, 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 the policeman or the police system in Cleveland. The point is this. I just want to illustrate this point. It matters to us that somehow... 
in this world or out of it, there is justice. It matters. It matters even in the abstract when it's, it's happening to religion Muslims or, or the, the, to the victim in, in, uh, in Cleveland. But it matters when something evil happens to us. Right? But the doctrine of the judgment of God is a great advantage in this. It shows us that, that the world is a just place. There is justice. And it tells us we don't have to take revenge because our motives are flawed and our knowledge is incomplete. But there is someone who knows all things and is pure and holy. And there is justice. The justice will be done. So I don't think it's the actual fact of judgment and justice that troubles us so much as the thought that it might befall us. We want to be able to do things with impunity as long as other people can't. And maybe God, maybe God doesn't deal so well with shades of gray. Maybe it's black or, or it's white. And we look inside all of our hearts and see, well, we're not white. We're certainly not black, but we're not white. So maybe, maybe the problem is this, that we want justice, but we don't get to meet it out. You know, God's king, and he tells us what sins require judgment and what actions require, warrant judgment and what don't. And that's the trouble, is that we can't make the decision, really, that he has to. But that's only a modest qualifier to the whole notion of just, judgment and justice being uncomfortable. That's not really the main point. The main point I, I want to make this morning is that even acknowledging this, the severity of God's judgment, this is not his primary characteristic. It's there, but it's not what defines him initially or primarily. The New Testament teaches us this even more clearly than the Old, although it was there in Second Kings. You see what Peter says in Second Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. 400 years, God waited for Israel to repent, to come to their senses, to worship the God that loved them and cared for them and nurtured them and kept them safe. 400 years, God waited, and he kept sending prophets. He kept sending warnings. 400 years, and finally he had enough. Well, you know, 2,000 years ago, God sent Christ to take judgment so that we wouldn't have to. And what has God done for the last 2,000 years except waited patiently? Why? He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. God has said there's going to be a judgment, and it's waiting so long that even 2,000 years ago, in the first century, some of the church in Second Peter said, hey, come on, there's not going to be any judgment. It's been thousands of years since there's been no judgment. There's not going to be any judgment. And Peter said, look, the fact that the judgment hasn't come doesn't mean it's not going to come. 
What it means is that God is incredibly patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And yet in the very next verse, he does say, still, don't misunderstand the patience of God, because the day of the Lord will come, and it will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. God's primary characteristic is love and mercy and patience. But judgment will come eventually. So the primary characteristic of God is his patience. And one final, I know I have six points but I, in your bulletin, but I collapsed them into the three to make it easier to manage. The other demonstration of the primary character of God comes in Jesus. His patience and the depths of his love. And the reason why we don't want to give up the doctrine of God's anger or wrath and judgment is this. If God is kind to us, or to people in general, that's nice. We like a God who's kind. But if God is kind to the people who anger him beyond measure and justly anger him. I mean, he's justly anger beyond measure. If God is kind to the people who bring him wrath, this is an extraordinary testimony to the character of God. Uh, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that we are flawed people, all of us. And yet God loves us despite it. Because if we lose sight of the thought that we're flawed people, if we come to think that we're wonderful people, God loves us, no big deal. Everybody loves us because we're wonderful people. But the message of scripture is, by nature, we don't love God. By nature, we don't treat each other all that great. And by nature, this matters a lot to God. And yet, despite that, you see, what's the message of John 3.16? Despite that, God so loved the world. Despite the world's antagonism toward him, which provokes his anger, God so loved the world, not just his own people, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son. God gave the greatest gift he could possibly give. A demonstration of the depth of his commitment and love for us. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through that son. So the judgment of God, the doctrine of the judgment of God is very valuable because it's a reflection a reverse image of the even greater depth of his love and greater primacy of his love for us and for all the world. And yet even John 3 in proclaiming this doesn't let go of the judgment of God. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Yet if people ignore this extraordinary generosity 
What's the right outcome? John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in the Son is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The greater his commitment to us and his sacrifice for us, the greater the seriousness with which he takes our apathy toward him. That's the message of Second Kings and the message of the New Testament. That the anger of God is never primary. It's secondary or tertiary. What's primary is God's kindness and grace and generosity. His patience when people disrespect him and disobey him. But there is that caveat. Eventually, that patience and kindness wear out. Now, I want to bring one final point here. When you talk like this, or when Christians read this part of the Bible, often they, we got this kind of guilt-ridden thing which we look every little piece of our lives, every little thing that's wrong, a long tradition, maybe Chinese church or conservative church, whatever, every little thing that maybe, you know, I lost my temper with somebody today, or, or, or I cheated on the test, or what, one thing or another, little things. We blow this in the, we take molehills and make them into mountains. And we flagellate ourselves. Notice there's two sins here that God gets anger over. One is our refusal to worship him. And, our other, and the other sin is egregious mistreatment of other people. He's not talking about those little peccadilloes that beset us all. And this is not a message of... The, the text, Second Kings 17 and 25, it's not a message of judgment toward those who... Make a reasonable effort at loving and worshiping God in response to his love for them. It's not a message of condemnation for those flawed human beings who do love God and do seek to serve him and others. It's a message for those who show careless disregard for the fact that God is gracious and a deep disregard for the fact that Christ sent his son. And it's a message for those who engage in egregious evil that there is a day coming where there will be judgment. But that day hasn't come yet. And the solution for us, as it was for ancient Israel, is the same. Flee to God. He welcomes all those who embrace him. Let's pray together. Father, By your word, by your spirit, help us to find ourselves secure in your grace and mercy. By your word, by your spirit, keep us from becoming those who fall under your judgment because we've turned our backs on you and each other. We pray this in the name of him who demonstrates the primacy of your love. In the name of our Lord and Savior. Jesus. Amen.